This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What if you're feeling a little socially awkward and you're at a networking dinner or something and you just don't know what to say? Everyone's talking about the Middle East crisis and you don't know anything. And then they're talking about business and you're afraid to bring up stuff. Well, my guest today wrote a book called The Power of Strangers about how to talk to strangers. And he gave me a lot of good. I'm very socially awkward. It's really funny. Like I can give a talk in front of thousands of people and I don't get nervous at all. I could do stand-up comedy in front of a ton of people. I don't get nervous. But if I'm just like at a dinner, I'm really socially awkward. To hear all of his advice, it's really fascinating to hear kind of the evolutionary basis of why small talk is actually more important than I realized. Let's listen to Joe Cohane, The Power of Strangers. I told Ev Williams, the best business model for Medium is to set up a subscription service, allow people to either have a free blog or whatever Medium or a subscription newsletter. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And now you're seeing like Substack and ghost.org get like billion dollar valuations and Medium's going to go bankrupt. Well, they did it. They anyway, have a subscription I'm service. I'm just saying I'm smarter than <laughs> Ev Williams who started Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but they do a subscription service. They launched one now they do. Uh, when I was there. Yeah. Um, when were you there? Um, I left like two years ago, probably to do this book. Really? How long, how many years did it take you to do this book? Um, I don't know, maybe two years, about two years. Yeah. Yeah. About that. So the book's called the power of strangers, the benefits of connecting in a suspicious world. Joe, do you talk to strangers a lot? I do now. Um, you know, if you want to hear it, I can give you a little backstory on how this project came to be. Yeah, like, did you get in trouble for talking to little girls I, or something? Oh, I used to get in trouble. No, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble for talking in class. I definitely got that. But um, but no, I was I was raised by two people who talked to strangers a lot. And uh, so over the course of my life, I saw that it worked really well for them. They would chat with anybody, and they made friends that way, and they had a lot of fun, and it was just like a way to live. Wait wait a second. So wait, we can't, we can't just leave me with that. You grew up from, but raised by two people who talked to strangers a lot. Why? What did your parents do? Like, what was their, why did they talk to strangers more than the average person? I think it was just, I think it was generational for one thing. And I think it was just their personalities. Um, but they really, like, you would see it a lot. They would sit in a restaurant and they would start talking to the people next to them in the restaurant. And they were good that enough at it that it wouldn't be annoying, right? They weren't pests. That sounds really great. It must have been interesting for you. Yeah, it was super interesting. But I mean, the big thing was I just saw them make friends. Uh, and they've continued to make friends like well into their 70s, which is like a pretty good way to live. Are they happy people? For sure. Yeah, they, I mean, they have like, they, they're out all the time. You know, they're super social. You know, interestingly, my father's a funeral director. So you, you may, might not expect him to be like a super social, happy person um, who's like really eager to, to connect with people and talk to people, but he, he definitely is. Actually, from my vast experience watching the TV show Six Feet Under, I would think that they are, they have to keep, they have to be the ones with energy and socializing in order to keep all the other sad people happy and happy customers. Yeah, they have to be pretty good at reading people and pretty good at, at, at being social and, and reassuring people and comforting people, for sure. It's funny, when that, when that show came out, my brother, Dennis, was profiled in a bunch of magazines. 
Because really? people were shocked that funeral directors could be like kind of cool. They could be kind of interesting people. You know, we have this perception that they're kind of gloomy. Um, so my brother ended up getting profiled in all these magazines as like an interesting. Was he in the family business? Guy. What's that? Was he in the family business? Yeah, yeah. My whole family's in that business. I'm the only one who's not. And do they like um, take care of the bodies too? Like make sure they look good and everything cosmetically for the funerals? Yeah, embalming. Yeah, all funeral directors have to go to embalming school to learn how to do that. Um, they didn't necessarily wow. do it all the time. Like people work there who do it, but everybody, you have to know how to do it to get into that business. And so you just said, you know, not for me. <laughs> yeah, not for me. Uh, I wanted to be a writer. Um, so I ended up doing that, but I worked at the place for a while. Uh, and it was, it was, it was kind of great experience to do it as a young person for sure. So what got you thinking about strangers? I mean, it's an interesting topic. And the reason I wanted to, you to come on is a, I believe in a lot of the data on, you know, weak connections are stronger than in many ways, strong connections. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but also I find that I have problems with this, you know, and I try to get better at it. I, I, I have mentioned in another podcast, I have a easier time talking to large groups, like a lecture or a talk or something. But when it comes to talking to, uh, let's say not good friends, but you know, weak connections, I have a, I have a lot of difficulty. Yeah. I think a lot of people are that way. You know, I should say from the start that I, I'm not by nature like a super kumbaya kind of guy. I'm not the person who just came to this really naturally. You know, I watched my parents do it and I dabbled in it a little bit myself over the course of my life. And I'm obviously a journalist, so I talk to strangers in that capacity. But it's not, I'm not the kind of person who's like always doing this. Like you meet those people who are so adept at this, they're so good at it that you can put them into any situation and they're like, they have this guy's like entire life story in five seconds. Yeah, like, like a journalist... A, a journalist, I feel, is a different part of the brain. Like, we can have this podcast and you're, you know, a stranger or a weak link to me, but we'll have a conversation and then this I have no problem with. And like a journalist, you call someone up, it's a scheduled conversation with a goal and it could turn out in many ways unexpected. You never know. But uh, it's it's a, how do you call it? It's a structured conversation as opposed to talking to someone who's standing in the elevator next to you or calling up a friend of a friend that you barely know and trying to make energy happen in that conversation. Yeah, it's super structured. You know what your roles are. You feel safe. You know what your job is. It's not like, you know, there's an element of improv to it, but it's not to the same degree that you have to improvise when you meet someone in person for the first time. And it's a different skill set. Like to be a good interviewer, to be a good journalist, is a, there's a spectrum. There's bad journalists. There's good journalists. So there's a skill set. Whereas there's not really a measured skill set on, oh, he's a great conversationalist. I mean, people do say that, but it's like an, a different kind of skill set. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a story. So I, I, as part of the research for this, I took a class in London with a woman named Georgie Nightingale, who literally, she's like a communications expert who teaches people to talk to strangers, among other things. And one of the, one of the tasks that we had was we were paired with someone else in the class they were going to tell us something about themselves. And then we were going to ask like good questions and listen and just try to get a sense of like who they are and what motivates them. Right. And so I was like, this is going to be a piece of cake. I do this all the time. Like this is my job. So, you know, this woman gives me a detail about her life. And, and I think within like a minute or so, like I had, I had something good. Right. And then I was, of course I was just like, got it. I got it. I found it. And so the teacher comes over and she was like, um, I was like, so that went great. Like, look what I got. And she was like, yeah. She was like, that wasn't a conversation. That was an interrogation. Like you're leaning forward. You're asking questions. You knew what you're after. And like you went and fetched it like a pheasant, you know? Um, and she was like, that's not what you do. The difference between a structured interview like this and having a conversation in the wild with somebody is that 
it's number one, unstructured. Number two, you don't know who the other person is. But more importantly, you have to relinquish control of the conversation. And that's really intimidating to a lot of people. Um, you have to listen. You have to be willing to be surprised by what they say. You have to ask them good questions. You have to avoid the temptation to just make it about you, you know? Um, and so that's kind of daunting because you just have to pay really close attention. To your point about talking to big groups, you know, you know the dynamic. You know how it's going to work. You're going to say something. They're going to listen. Maybe you're going to feed off their energy. But when I'm standing in front of someone right. new, think about what happens, right? Think about you're randomly talking to somebody. You don't know who they are. You don't know their story. You don't know what they like. You don't know what they're thinking about you. In some cases, you don't know if they're a threat or not. Um, you have to really pay attention. You have to look at their face. You have to look at their body language. You have to search them for clues that they might have something in common with you. You have to listen really closely to what they're saying. Um, maybe you're worried about what they're thinking about you when you're talking to them. All these levels. There are all these levels of what should be what we think of as a relatively simple interaction that can make it really challenging to do. Um, it can, you know, there's like it's cognitively demanding to have these sorts of interactions with people. Um, and, and so and, people and are, you, are, are kind of intimidated by doing it. And when they do it, they feel that maybe they're not, they're not doing so well at it because it's so hard. But the fact is it's, you know, it's supposed to be challenging. It, it is very hard. And, and you have a lot of research and examples in the book, but I, I want to start off asking you just a bunch of questions. So mm -hmm. I remember in, in, in 1994, I, um, you know, I sort of, I was born in New York city. I grew up around there, but I came back to New York city as an adult with a job and essentially moved into the city at the beginning of my adult life. And it's one of those places where, you know, you're around 6 million people and you never felt so lonely. So if you were knowing what you know, now, if you were just dropped into a city where there's people around, uh, and you felt that way, you felt that cliched way of like, I'm around everybody, but I know nobody. What would you do knowing what you know now? Um, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with somebody about this uh, like an hour ago who had just moved to a new city. And she was like, what well, do I do? Are you cheating on me with other podcasts? <laughs> it was a civilian, I swear. I'm not doing any other podcast. All right, um, good. No, you can but, do other um, podcasts. No, so she, she had just moved to a new city. And so she's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, give me a, give me a playbook here for like, I don't know anybody in the city. And I said, the thing to do is, like, first of all, you have to resolve that you're going to try to meet people, right? You're going to try to be engaged in the place where you live. You're going to try to, like, dial in, in a way. Because otherwise, like, no one's going to pay attention to you because that's how cities are, right? It's too many people to pay attention to. So the thing you have to do in order to start having these sorts of interactions, which just talking to strangers, is um, two things. And interestingly, neither of them have anything to do with talking. Number one, you have to notice stuff, right? So you got to put your phone down. You got to take your earbuds out. You have to notice your environment. You have to walk around and look for stuff that's interesting to you. And if there's someone attached to the thing that's interesting to you, ask them about it. Ask them why they did it. Ask them what it means, something like that. And then once you start that sort of interaction, which might go nowhere, but oftentimes in my experience, it actually goes somewhere pretty interesting. Um, just listen to them. Um, when they start speaking, start listening in a deeper way. So you're not just listening for them to say something that's going to allow you to talk about yourself, which is what we all do at like cocktail parties and stuff. It's so obnoxious, but we all do it. Um, you want to try to listen for what motivates them. You want to try to listen to what inspires them. You want to try to listen to what their experiences are like, what their lives are like, that sort of thing. And then when they start telling you that stuff, you can just ask open-ended questions, which are like, this is like a, it's like a magic trick, how well this works. Just ask who, when, why, how, that sort of stuff, and then just let them talk. And you'll see that, number one, the conversation will go where the conversation goes. Like, you have to relinquish control over it, like I said. And it involves being kind of vulnerable and, and kind of, you know, maybe feeling a little uncomfortable, not knowing where this exchange is going to go. 
Um, but in time, in my experience, it, it often goes somewhere really interesting. And then they become sort of flattered that you're interested in what they're interested in. And maybe they become interested in you and they start asking you questions about yourself. And then you can, you're, you're off to the races. You can start having like a pretty good conversation on the basis of a simple thing, like something that you noticed. So, so let me ask you, there's a lot to unpack there. One thing I think you said that was very important is that it may, you could start talking to them and it may not go anywhere. Like, and, and you also added later, it might be uncomfortable. I think these are important concepts actually, like particularly in something like this, people have to be okay with, let's say, uh, uh, a concept of failure, whatever failure means in this context, that you have to be uncomfortable that it's not going to like possibly change your life or result in a new friend or be some scintillating thing that creates, you know, amazing insights and ideas. You have to just be okay with it, not going anywhere. And I think a lot of people aren't okay with that, but that's an important thing for just having conversations like this. The second thing is you have to notice them doing something that I don't know, stirs something in you enough that you want to go over and talk to them. It stirs some curiosity. So like, what's a specific example, maybe even in your own case or someone else's case where that curiosity was stirred and how do you start such a conversation? I'll give you one example where I was taking a taxi like early in the morning one day and the driver pulls up and he has like a bowl of Starbucks in the taxi, right? Or not Starbucks, um, Starburst, the candy, right? The candy that pulls mm -hmm. your teeth out. Um, and so I was just like, Starburst, huh? Like, I haven't seen this in a while. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I tried a couple things and people didn't really want the hard candy and the, the M&Ms were melting. So I figured like, I'm going to try this. He was like, but people seem to like it. They seem to enjoy it. And so then I just asked, like, we had already started talking and I think I mentioned something about how I used to eat this stuff and that's why my mouth is full of cavities. Um, and, uh, and I was like, so how long have you been driving for? And he's like, well, you know, and he starts telling the story. Um, over the course of that cab ride, I learned that this person had spent 10 years of his life in Uganda um, as like a public health worker and had basically become the guardian of a, of a 12 year old kid who was covered with burns, who was going to die if he didn't get medical treatment. And this cab driver dedicated 10 years of his life to trying to get this kid the medical treatment that would save his life. It was an amazing story. Uh, incredible. And I ended up becoming friends with this driver. And I just, I, I was just texting with him this morning, actually. Um, but just on the basis of like starting out, making small talk, right? So making small talk about the stupid candy that he has. And then once we feel comfortable kind of chatting about something, then I can ask like another question that pertains more to like, who are you? You know? Um, and at that point, maybe he feels more comfortable because we've already had like, we've already made a little bit of small talk. We've already kind of become comfortable in each other's each other's uh, company. Um, but that was a big one. I mean, I actually made a friend off of that, which was pretty cool. And, you know, to your point about small talk too, like I, I talk about this a lot. Um, everybody hates small talk, right? Small talk is like death. You're at a party, you get stuck in like a small talk vortex and it will put, it'll take years off your life. I, I hate small talk in a lot of ways. But one thing that I discovered when I was doing this research is the work of this English social anthropologist, Kate Fox, who studied like weather talk in England. You know, like the stereotype of the English is they just can't get enough of weather talk. Um, and it drives people crazy and people see that as like the lack of imagination or maybe they don't have anything else to say. Um, Fox's idea is that small talk in that sense isn't a conversation. There's no content to it. What it is is a bonding ritual. It's a way that two people can be together and can reassure one, an one another that they're not dangerous, that they're experiencing the same thing, that they can talk. And then from there, you can actually have a conversation. So if you think of small talk in that sense, 
we're just getting comfortable with each other. We're talking about how do you know these people at this party? We're talking about the weather. We're talking about the bus that broke down. Um, that's just a bonding ritual. That's a way to make you comfortable in each other's company. And from there, then you can start having a conversation. But you have to know what small talk is for. Okay, but given that you know that information, what good does that do you? Does that mean you accept this, but then you know that later on it should evolve or, or what? What, I, ex- I, ex- I accept like the necessity of small talk? Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I mean, you can skip it sometimes, but I always hated it and it always made me crazy and it always made me think less of the person who was like making small talk with me because I just assumed falsely that this is like, this is what they're capable of. Like, this is the best they can do. And they probably thought the same of me because like, I didn't, I'm not saying anything interesting either. We're just talking about the weather. Um, what it did for me personally is just understanding like there's a function to this. This exists for a reason. Um, and you have to be aware of that to the extent that you don't dismiss the person that you're talking to. Don't confuse small talk for like a lack of a mind or a lack of imagination or a lack of ideas. It's basically something that we evolved to do in order to facilitate conversation with people we don't know. Okay, so, so a couple more things to unpack. In your conversation with the cab driver from Uganda, again, not that that's a structured conversation. It's a different type of conversation where you are each other's captive audience. You have a captive audience. You talk, he wants a good tip, he has to listen and talk back to you or vice versa. You want a pleasant ride. You can either ignore him or you talk back and have a pleasant conversation. So it's still a bit of a a, a captive audience. But what about if you're walking around on the street, when's the time when you've completely noticed something randomly interesting, or it doesn't have to be you. It could be another story. Um, and, and, and then what do you do to go up and talk to that person? You see someone juggling and you think, Oh, that's cool. And you want to go up and, like, it, it, what's a specific instance where that might have happened to you or someone you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's completely true. Like, there are different levels of difficulty. And I, I go through this in the book. Like, an easy conversation with a stranger is, like, a waiter, right? Like, you you know what your roles are. You're in a safe place. Um, right. You understand, Another like, the terms audience. of engagement. Yeah, you're a captive audience. Like, talking to someone on a, on a plane sometimes, like, sometimes that can be really enjoyable. As long as you're, like, aware that they might not want to talk. Um there is, let me, let me think of an instance where I just started to talk to someone in public or think of a good one because uh, I talked to a lot of people while I was doing this book. But there's like a really interesting point that I learned um, while taking this class in London about noticing something and talking to someone, about like starting a conversation cold. And this is actually ingenious. So say you're on the subway, right? Which no, one is, no one's supposed to talk to each other on the subway. That's like a pretty hard and social norm. And someone is doing something that's interesting. Maybe they have like a pair of glasses that are interesting or their bag is nice and you're looking for a bag or something. Maybe they're reading a book that you're interested in. Whatever it is, follow your curiosity. But you have to acknowledge that you're doing something abnormal in order for it to seem, in order to make them comfortable. And the thing that I learned in this class was something called a preframe, which is a way to get past the wariness we feel towards someone who's breaking a social norm. So say I'm on the train with you and I'm looking to get glasses and I like your glasses. Now, I could just say, I like your glasses. Where did you get your glasses? And you're going to think that I'm a lunatic, right? Because you're not supposed to do that. Like, I'm breaking a social norm. And we worry that people who break social norms don't have, like, self-control. There's something wrong with them. They might be dangerous, right? But if I use a preframe, it would involve me, you know, returning to you and saying, look, I know we're not supposed to talk to people on the subway, but I got to ask you, like, where did you get those glasses? And then justify my interest by saying, like, I'm in the market for new glasses. I really like those. Um, that's a way to do it. That's a way to notice something and get past like the wariness that people might feel towards someone who's talking to strangers in a place that you're not supposed to do it. 
Okay. So, so like what's, what, tell me has any situation, have you been able to use this information for yourself to engage? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I met, I was at the, um, at the museum of modern art and I noticed that a guy was like taking a lot of pictures of like the little descriptive plates, you know, like next to paintings that tell you the story of the painting and the years and the artists and stuff like that. And I, I was just paying attention and I noticed that he kept taking pictures of like certain ones, but he wasn't taking pictures of the paintings necessarily. And so, you know, I, I kind of like noticed this for a bit and then I, he paused in front of this one painting. I kind of, you know, stood next to him kind of a safe distance. I didn't sneak up on him or anything. And I was kind of like, what do you think? You know, after I had been there long enough to, to like reassure him that I'm not crazy. Um, what do you think of the painting? And he would be like, he's like, I like it. And I was like, well, you just, you just take a picture of the plate. Like what, you know, what's your interest? And he's like, well, this is, you know, this is sort of embarrassing. He was like, but I, I just take pictures of art um, that was made in the year of my birth, which was 1977. Oh my gosh. And he was a Spanish tourist. And he goes all over the world and he just collected all these pictures of like paintings and like informational plates of art that was made the year he was born. And I was born in 1977 too. So I was like, holy shit, I was born in 1977. And then I was like, well, what do you, you know, I noticed he had an accent. Like, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing in New York? And then just had like a nice conversation with the guy. Um, and he was really interesting. He was a you know, really nice guy and kind of quirky and unexpected. Um, it worked pretty well. But I, I did a lot of that stuff. That is a great example because you followed your curiosity and there's a great result in that. Yes, it's interesting that you're both born in the same year and stuff, but the great result is I've never heard of anyone taking photographs of art that was made on his birth year. So that you can almost add that to your repertoire of possible ideas to have in life because you learn that's something like you just tell me that I just learned something completely new, that this is a possible thing to do to be creative is to somehow mix some important aspect of yourself to some completely disconnected other aspect of life. He connected his calendar birth year to art and photography. And it's totally fascinating that now I have that and you have that forever in our, again, our repertoire of tools to be creative. Might never use that tool, but it's there now. Yeah. And I, I find that to be a great result. Not that, not that it, a conversation has to be result oriented as, as you've pointed out, but that's, that's just a great example. Thank you for that, that story. Uh, in, in the book, you talk about the difference between strong links and, and wink, weak links. So a strong link is like, let's say a good friend or a family member and a weak link might be the hot dog lady that you wave to every morning or, you know, someone like this guy or your cab driver or a friend of a friend. And you say the people who have more interactions with weak links during a day tend to register their happiness level at a higher level. Why, why is that? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a really interesting result because, you know, like one of the most studied effects in psychology is that a person's happiness is determined by the quality of their relationships. And when people did that research, they, they thought of relationships in terms of friends and family, right? They didn't think of like the guy at the bodega. But over the last few years, people have started to study the, the weak links thing, um, particularly Jillian Sandstrom and Elizabeth Dunn, who are two psychologists. And what they found, like you said, is that people who have interactions, and these could be passing interactions. You could just chat with like a cashier. You can chat with someone at the bus stop. It doesn't have to be like a life-altering conversation. Um, they feel happier. They feel more connected to where they live. They might feel more optimistic. They might feel better about people because they've been reassured about humanity 
by like a pleasant conversation with one of these people. Um, and it also has the effect of like rooting you in the world. So, you know, I live in New York. New York is constantly changing, say before the pandemic, like it froze for a little while, obviously. But there's so many people around and stuff is always changing and it can be really disorienting to live in a place where there's just nothing that's like stationary, right? Everything's changing. It's always new people. That that can be really disorienting. The power of weak ties is that there are like stable elements in your everyday existence that you can rely on that will be there. So for me, it's the woman who owns the coffee shop I go to. I see her every day. I chat with her every day. I know that she's going to be there. I know that like, I, I like her. She's really interesting. We'll have a little chat. It'll be 10 seconds and then I'll go somewhere else. The guy at my bodega, like I know him. I've lived here for years now. Um, I'll chat with him. But I, you, can, you know that this stuff is going to be in the same place all the time. Um, and the power of weak ties also just speaks to human nature um, as like a hypersocial creature. I think about the relationship between strong ties and weak ties as like a matter of diet, like social diet, right? So having like positive relationships with friends and family are really important. That's a really important part of your social diet. But you can also have all this other stuff too. It's like an infinite resource of things that can keep you happy as a social animal. Um, and the power of those interactions can be surprisingly potent. So is there is there a relationship between this and the so-called Dunbar number? So the Dunbar number is this scientifically concluded number that we're capable of having, you know, 150 people who we know well, like, let's say, call those your strong connections. And beyond that, it's just, we, we, they're, they're basically the, the weak links. And, you know, like you said that, you know, the theory is, is that, you know, stay in touch with your Dunbar number, which whether it's 30, or I think it's 150 is the number. Yeah. And, and, and often this is, this is actually referred to often in the fact that we relate very strongly to people on TV. We see a lot like Kim Kardashian, because we might not really know 150 people that well. So the people we see most on television fill in the gaps in our Dunbar number, but you're sort of suggesting that, Hey, don't do that. Instead, weak interactions are much more meaningful than learning about Kim Kardashian is, is kind of the conclusion I'm deriving from this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the there's a popular reading of the Dunbar number that, that there's no point in trying to meet more people. You'd just be like, I got my 150. There's no point in me meeting anybody else. Um, what the weak ties research finds and what the talking to strangers research finds is that you can have your 150 friends, but that's, you're not at like maximum social health. You know, you can still talk to more people. You can have pleasant interactions on the bus. You can chat with people in the coffee shop. Um, that will make you feel good. Like that's that's like a bonus on top of, your um, primary relationships, your friends and family relationships. Um, but people, you know, chronically just underestimate how that, how important that stuff is, how good it is for you to just be in the habit of just chatting with people all the time, even if they're not friends, you know, even if they don't become good friends. I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now 
by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Why did you really want to get into this? Like, were you having problems talking to strangers or did you want more friends or like, what got you into this? Was it just something you read and you wanted to explore further? No, that's is a great question. Um, I realized a few years ago, and I told you about my background as like a person raised by people who chronically talk to strangers. I realized a few years ago that I just wasn't doing it at all, right? Like I was going to a bar and I would join that sad row of people like sitting in a bar staring at their phone. Um, and I found myself doing things like going to the self-checkout lane to avoid having to talk to like the cashier. And it was weird because I never chose to do it and I was never really like that before. So I started to wonder why... I had like, without choosing to, eliminated an entire category of human interaction from my life. And so in my case, two big things had happened. One was I had a kid in a demanding job and talking to strangers takes time and it takes energy. Um, So I was just too tired to do it, right? I had like a two-year-old, she had sleep problems, like I was just a corpse and I had this job that was demanding. Um, So I didn't have like the the bandwidth to do it or I felt I didn't have the bandwidth to do it. And the other thing is just the um, technology. So having a phone you know, ordering everything over apps, doing most of my communications over the computer, like just sitting there staring at my phone, like kind of like numbly ingesting Twitter for an hour, like at a public place. 
Um, I just had alternatives that were easier than talking to people. Like Twitter's easier. I, I think it'll eat your soul, but um, but it's easy to do, right? Like it's frictionless. Um, so I, you know, I, I started to started to wonder, like you know, maybe this isn't so good. Maybe I don't feel great about this. So I wanted to understand what was keeping me from doing it, but what was also keeping other people from doing it. Um, and then I wanted to understand why, um, when I did do it, when I did have a good interaction, uh, why it felt weirdly good. You know, like, what does it mean that I would have like a chat with a cab driver that was interesting and then I would feel, I'd feel good afterwards. You know, I had a cabbie, uh, uh, like this, um, Pakistani cab driver who was showing me videos of his kid receiving a good citizenship award at school. And he was so proud of it. Like, why did that feel so good to me? Why did that make the world feel better to me? Um, so that's what started it off. And then I, I just started looking at everything that can keep us from talking to strangers. And that's everything from our fear that we don't know how to do it well to living in a city where the social norm is against talking to strangers to things like racism and prejudice to where you live, um, you know, the place you're in, all these stuff. There's like a million different moving parts to, to a pretty simple interaction like that that I really wanted to understand. I wanted to break it down to like a molecular level to understand it. I, I think it's fascinating. I think this is, it's an incredibly valuable skill to, again, expand the toolkit of types of strangers to talk to. So as we mentioned earlier, like interviewing is a skill and you're talking to strangers and some people are good interviewers, some people are, are bad and there's merit to be becoming a good interviewer. Uh, similarly, your ex experience in the museum, talking to someone who might have unexpected information that you could use later in life or, or is, is incredibly valuable, or perhaps that person becomes a friend, which also is incredibly valuable. Uh, you know, whether that happens in the middle of the street or a museum or whatever, I think that's, that's really important. And plus if it increases your well being, as you suggest in the book, all, all the better. And then there's the skill of talking to people like as a public speaker in whatever format that's incredibly valuable. And then to be able to have the small talk that invariably happens after you give a public speech is incredibly valuable. What about, let, let's talk about other situations. Like, let's say, uh, you are at a party and you vaguely know the people, you know, some people, you don't know other people and you're wandering around and you don't know who to talk to and you're starting, the, you're starting to feel awkward. So I'm going to throw a bunch of situations at you. This is the first, what do you do at a party? Yeah. Kind of depends on the nature of the party. Let's just say it's a random party where you're a little bit more on the outside than most people. Yeah. I think the first thing to do is to understand that while you feel that everyone is staring at you for being alone at the party, most people are probably not even noticing that you're there. You don't stand out as much as you think you do. Because um, I think a lot of people get in that situation. They think that people are looking at them and they're judging them because they don't have anyone to talk to. Um, you can get past that. You can be reasonably assured that people aren't judging you. They're paying attention to the conversations they're in. Um, the big thing is just to, to go talk to someone. If there's someone else who's not, who's not talking to someone, you can just say, what brings you here? Who do you know? You know, I always just say like, what's your connection to these people? And then you get a little bit, maybe they work at the same place or they met at something and then you can kind of take it from there. Um, but there are some like really good conversations that work in this sort of scenario, like um, that are kind of like, like small talk adjacent, right? So they, they're kind of like small talk, but they have a little more specificity to them, a little more, a little more oomph to them. And one idea that I got from someone I was talking to was um, don't ask people what they do, ask people what they would like to do more of. Mm, uh, and that's, like you know, that's that. a little tricky to do just totally cold to someone at a party. But once you start talking to someone, you know, you get your weather talk out of the way or whatever, 
Just ask them that because okay, they don't want to talk. I, they know that they know that when someone asks you what you do, they probably don't really care, right? They're just filling space. So if you can do that, right, it's you're kind like, of small talk. Yeah, it's small talk, and it's it's empty, and maybe they're not really curious. They just don't know what else to say. But if you do that, if you're like, "What would you like to do more of?" then you will instantly get a look at what this person's life is like, right? You know what motivates them. You know what they like. You know what they don't like because if they say they would rather not do their job, you know that that's not a great fit for them. You get a sense of like who they are very, very quickly. You get like a really profound sense of like who this person is. Um, and then you can ask them why. Like why was, how did you start doing this? Like how did you start sailing? Like that sounds really interesting. Like what's the furthest you've ever sailed before? Um, and from there it's just like be curious, ask open-ended questions and listen really closely and you'll be, you know, again and again and again, I was certainly shocked by like the stuff that would come out of people that I did not expect to be there. And it's, you know, it didn't take that many steps to like get to that, to get to that place. Pretty cool. What if you're, what if you're also totally transparent about it? You like, you run into, you run into someone at a party and you're like, man, this weather is crazy. And they say, yeah, it's supposed to rain for the next week. And then, and then you say, okay, we got the weather talk out of the way. That's great. You know, the weather, I know the weather, but I don't want to ask you what you do but I, I think it's a better conversation starter to ask you, what would you like to do more of? So, you, so you're, you're, you'd be totally transparent that you're trying to have a good conversation with them and you ask this, this leading question, which is a very interesting question. And so they'll laugh a little bit at the transparency and kind of, so get, you, 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 laughter kind of is a bonding thing. And now you get started on that conversation. I think that's brilliant. I think that's a great idea because you're, you're showing them right out of the gate that you're not a bore. Right. And then, and then I like you, you know, so let's say they're into sailing and you're asking open-ended questions, but I like one of the questions you asked, which is what's the furthest you ever sailed. So taking it to, you know, like people often, when they hear I do podcasts, they ask a lot of people ask, who's the best guest you've ever had? Who's the worst guest you've ever had? So I like taking it to, I think, I think people do this naturally, but, um, I think it's a good thing to take a conversation immediately to the extreme. Oh, you make money what's the most money you ever made on a deal, yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what's the highest, you know, some things are inappropriate, but, uh, uh, oh, you're a police officer. What's the, uh, worst thing you've ever, worst crime you've ever witnessed personally. I don't know. But, uh, no, I totally, uh, so, I, I, so I like that. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I often will, will look for disasters. Um, like what's the, what's the worst thing about that? You know, like I was in an apartment in a, in, a, in a party at a beautiful apartment and the host like came over to introduce herself and I was just like, what's your least favorite thing about this place? And she immediately started laughing and then like, you know, she knew that it wasn't going to be small talk, that I'm kind of being playful. Um, asking people like who the worst guest is, is really playful. Asking them about like, you know, did your boat ever sink when you were sailing? Um, that's much more interesting. Uh, and they'll like that too, because they'll get a chance to talk about something that was difficult for them um, that maybe people do, don't usually care about. There's a guy named uh, Paul, it- Paul Ford, who's a tech CEO, who does this thing at parties where he goes up to someone and he's, he's kind of an introvert. Um, and this, the system he devised to deal with being an introverted parties, especially when he needed to network, right? Cause he's a CEO, um, he would ask them what they do. And then whatever they said, he would go, geez, that sounds really hard. And then they would just be <laughs> off. They would just go like, you would get right to the good stuff immediately because they'd be like, yeah, it is hard. No one ever thinks that it's that hard. Like you'd be like, yeah, maybe like podcasting is much harder than you think it would be. It's not just like sitting around, you know, shoot your mouth off, but it's a genius way to operate. It works really well. Oh my God. I gotta, I'm gonna write that down. Um, <laughs> what do you do? Boy, that sounds really hard. What, what did you say before? Uh, 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 and then I like the one who's the worst guest here <laughs> because it might be you. 
Right. <laughs> and so there's ways you could play, because there's ways you could play off that too. Like other than a, who's the worst guest you've ever had here? Or, or what do you like least about your home? Right. Yeah, just being playful, you know, like, uh, and it's funny because it's structured like small talk. So it's like what I would be expected to say in that apartment was like, you have a beautiful apartment. You would have to be falsely modest or whatever. But going right after it and being like, what sucks about this place? Um, it's just, it gets a laugh. It's sort of audacious. It's sort of cheeky, you know, and, and it'll make them like you a little bit more out of the gate in a way that wouldn't happen if you were just fawning over how beautiful this apartment was. Right, like it, it's it's funny. The the fawning is always comes across as BS. Yeah. But like, if I go into a, a let's say I go into a really nice office or a beautiful house where it's it's kind of obvious that this is a beautiful office with a beautiful view or a beautiful house with a, with, I always start by saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm really disappointed. I was told that there was a beautiful view here, but this is just horrible." <laughs> so I always start off with something like that. But I like the continuation. Like then they laugh. And, but I always like, I like the continuation you just have is no, seriously, what do you like least about your home? <laughs> like that right. kind of gets them started. That, this is like meeting strangers, but sometimes people are not strangers, but they're not quite, you don't quite know them yet. Mm -hmm. And so like, let's say, let's say I'm at a, a meetup of people who write for medium mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you, you write for medium, you mentioned, and, but I don't really, everybody's talking. I don't really know what to say, or I don't really have things in common with the people for whatever reason. What can I do? Let's say, okay, in better situations, what if you just have nothing in common with the, you're at a, a networking dinner and you have nothing in common with everyone and they all know each other and you don't. Yeah. Um, one good thing to do is, I mean, you have to go like one person at a time, right? You're likely not going to stand on a chair and like win the crowd over with one hilarious line. Um, but another, this is also a party trick now that I think of it. Um, there was a guy named Marty Barron who was the editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. He recently stepped down, but I knew him when he was the editor-in-chief of the Boston Globe because I'm from, the, from Boston and I used to work in the media scene in Boston. I'm sorry. And the thing that uh, Marty used to do um, with everybody was um, give me some free advice. So like, in his, you know, he's the head of a newspaper, but also as a guy. That. And to everybody, he would just be, and I remember I had lunch with him when I was like 23 or 24, and he was like, you know, this is like spotlight era Marty Baron. Like he was the guy who helped take down the Catholic Church in Boston, um, or at least took that, broke, break the scandal. And he does did that with everybody. Like you can ask waiters, you can ask cab drivers, you can ask people you work with, you can do anything. But what happens when you ask for free advice, right? Number one, you might get some pretty good advice. It might be useful. It might be a perspective that you hadn't considered before. It might change your thinking about something. What if they say free advice? Don't ask anybody for free advice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, then you're, then you're, then you're in a creek. Um, it's not going to work that well, but people will be like, think about it. Right. I mean, and you, you're different cause you're, you're on a, another level, but most, most people, most civilians, um, are not asked for their opinion all that often. Right. It's pretty rare that someone would be like, can I have your advice about something? Um, so it's kind of flattering. If you're like, if you're think of your, you're like a waiter, right. But you want to be a writer or you want to be an actor or something. You're more than a waiter. Not that there's anything wrong with being a waiter. Um, people treat you like a service robot all day long. No one recognizes that you're a person. No one really gives a shit that you have dreams. Um, when a guy, especially someone like, you know, Marty Barron, who's like a serious person, um, very successful and influential, asks you for some free advice, um, you're going to be flattered, right? You're going to be kind of delighted for one thing, that this guy's like seeing you as a person and, and sees you as worth listening to. 
Um, but maybe you have some pretty good advice. Maybe you've just been waiting for someone to give you some pretty good advice. But it's a really nice interaction, and it works for both sides. Like, it makes the waiter feel good. It's kind of fun. Like, sometimes it goes in weird directions. But maybe you do get, like, a bit of an interesting perspective on something. Maybe you get an idea on something. If you're a business person, maybe it gives you, like, an idea for a product or a market that you hadn't exploited, you know what I mean? You just never know which way it's going to go. But those sorts of approaches where you're kind of flattering someone end up working really well. Yeah, I love I love that. I'm trying to think of what to add to that. Like again, in the spirit of transparency, you could let's say it's everybody's watching the Super Bowl and you don't even know how to play football. You could say, "Listen, I want to talk to people, but I don't know anything about football. Give me some free advice about what I could talk to you guys about." Mm-hmm. <laughs> that might be interesting. Although people might say, "Just shut up and watch the game." Yeah, oftentimes um, you'll ask, like you'll you'll say, "I don't know anything about this. Like, where do I start?" Right. So they're yeah. talking about football, they're talking about whatever, just being like, I am totally cold here, but this sounds interesting. Like, where do I start? But, uh, but I, like, I like that, Get uh, give me free advice. What, um, what's another one? You give me a whole bunch of good ones here. <laughs> um, okay, so there's, there are these things called scripts. This is actually pretty interesting. Where, and you can think about it, say you go to the supermarket, right? And you get your food, you go to the cashier, the cashier says, how you doing? You say, I'm doing fine. How are you? The cashier says, fine. That's the end of it, right? You've learned nothing. You've said nothing. You've exerted no effort. You've spent no time. But you're still kind of talking to each other um, to show that we're here. Like, it would be awkward for us not to talk. So we're going to say something, but it's going to be nothing. It's going to be a script. So those are called scripts. And there are these things that we do pretty commonly um, just to, like, conserve your energy and your time and things like that. Like you're overwhelmed with a bunch of other stuff. You don't feel that you're, you have it in you to have like a conversation with this person. So one really good technique when you find yourself in that situation, which is, a, you know, not even a small talk situation, right? Like it's a nothing situation. But you're standing there with this person is to break the script. And the way you break the script is to, um, you can ask them how they are or they ask you how, they, how you are. Don't answer with a scripted answer. Don't just say, I'm good, fine, how are you? Answer with specificity. Um, you know, Georgie Nightingale, the woman who taught that class I took, um, gives a number when she's like at a coffee shop and someone's like, how are you doing today? Um, she'll be like, ah, it's seven out of 10. How are you doing? And so what does that do when you're that specific and you're also kind of that playful about it? They kind of have to answer in a number, right? They kind of have to give you a numerical answer and they probably will. And so they'll, they'll just say eight out of 10, you know, pretty good. And George's answer to that will be, what will it take you to get to a nine today? And then the person will be like, oh well, maybe, God, maybe work shouldn't be a pain in the ass today. Maybe I'm going to see my mother tonight and I hope it goes well. Like they'll, they'll give you a little bit about themselves. And you're in line. You can't hang out there all day. Like it might be a quick interaction, but, um, but it, works, it works pretty well. It just, it, it, like, it lets them know that you are like a thinking person, that you're interested and you're not just like a small talk robot like everyone else they interact with on a daily, daily basis. How, how would you break the script on the weather conversation? So like, uh, we're in an elevator, I vaguely know you, and, you know, because we're both leaving a party at the same time, say, and um, I say, man, that, that the, the weather's supposed to be beautiful this weekend. You could say, you know what I would really like? I would like, for once, a good tornado. No tornadoes in, <laughs> right. in, this, in this city. Yeah, you could be, um, be kind of contrary. Have you ever been in a tornado? Right. Yeah, you could be you could be contrary, um, which is pretty funny. I mean, I did that today when I was talking to someone at like a corner store. Um, Who, Joe Rogan? <laughs> you know him? Can you introduce me? Um, but no, just being like, uh, just walking into a place and just being like, 
man, it's beautiful out there today. It's just a perfect day. And I'm like drenched, like absolutely soaking wet. And the guy started laughing and then we just had a little conversation off of that. Um, but yeah, yeah, just like breaking the script, right? So you're, you're expected to say something, you're going to say it, it's going to be obvious, and the person's going to interpret that as you not being an interesting person and not really caring. Um, but if you go in there and you're like playing with it a little bit, you're, twist, you're, you're putting like a little spin on small talk, you're putting a little spin on those scripts, uh, it can work really well. Um, like something, you know, to our earlier point about stories about disasters being great, as long as they're not like, you know, serious disasters. Um, I always do this thing when I'm talking to people in like a restaurant or a store or something, like I'm talking to someone in like a service job. And, um, and I'll say, how you doing? And they'll say, fine, how are you? And I'll say, good. And then I'll say, um, are people behaving themselves today? And everybody laughs because what have I done by saying, are people behaving themselves today? I've shown that I understand that that job's harder than people think it is, right? Because you're like, you're, you're a bartender, you're working a coffee shop, like you're working a store. Those are like hard jobs. They're physically tricky because you're standing up all day. You're uncomfortable. And a lot of people just don't think you're a person. Like they don't treat you like you're a person. So now I've signaled that I know. Like I know this job kind of sucks and I know people are di difficult to deal with. But I also got like tons of good stories about people being crazy. Um, that were really funny. I mean, there was this teenage girl I talked to one time at like my local grocery store, and um, I was like, "How you doing today?" She's I, like, "I knew you were getting, I knew you were getting in trouble <laughs> as a stranger talking to little girls." But okay, go ahead. She uh, she goes, um, "I say hi, you know, good morning. How you doing today?" She said, "I'm doing fine. How are you?" So I'm doing fine. I was like, "People behaving themselves today," and she just sort of like makes this face, and then her coworker comes over with this like smile on her face, and she goes, "She got screamed at this morning." And I was like, you got screamed at? What happened? And so they start telling me the story about this customer they have who comes in every single day and screams at people. And she's like, she's well-dressed, she's presentable, she seems to be like reasonably affluent, but she just goes bananas on people every time she comes into this store. And I was like, oh my God, what a horrible thing to have to deal with. And they're kind of laughing about it. And uh, I was like, does she yell at everybody or just you? She's like, no, she, she yells at everybody. Like she was just yelling at the delivery boy out in the street after this. Uh, and I was like, does she look crazy? And uh, and she's like, no, she looks pretty normal. And so we kind of bonded over it a little bit. And I was like, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry I have to deal with that. What a nightmare. And at the end of the conversation, you know, I paid for my groceries and I went to go. And she was just like, thank you for being nice. And it was like a really nice moment. Like she hopefully felt she enjoyed that that exchange a little bit. She felt that someone was aware of how difficult that job could be. I got a funny story. I thought it was hilarious. And I get like a little glimpse of like the life of another person who otherwise I would probably never communicate with. It's like a little glass bottom boat tour of another existence, you know? It's it's fun. So, okay, what if what if um they're not a, a waiter or a waitress or or a, a cashier or whatever? What if they're like an accountant? And let's say you see them occasionally walking their dog in the street or you see them at the gym and oh, uh, what do you say? Like you already know what they do. You're already at the gym. You have common interests, but not like it's not like, "Hey, how many reps did you do today?" Like you want to ask them, you know, they're, they're an accountant 40, 50 hours a week, but you, you know, it's not like, Hey, are people behaving themselves? Like, what do you, what do you say then? Like an accountant is a, a whatever they could be anything. They could be an accountant or, uh, you know, a, a marketing manager at Procter and Gamble. Like what, what would you do then where there's not enough content in their work to ask them? Yeah. I mean, if they're an accountant for like white collar criminals, that could be interesting. Um, yes. you know, um, I've had those conversations. Yeah. Those I mean, you, you can, you know, you can do what we were talking about a little bit, which is just being like, you know, who's the worst criminal. Right, you know, who's, the, who's the biggest, who's the biggest crook you've ever dealt with. Um, let me think. 
I mean, you can do, if you end up talking to them, you can do the trick of being like, would you rather be doing something else? Like, you know, I, I just can't imagine being an accountant. Like, sell me on it. What's the, what's the case for being an accountant? You know, do you like it? Would you, you know, is okay. there something else you could do? So that's week one. What do you do week two? Well, when you run into them again? Yeah. Well, you have to like build the relationship. So you're not just going to be like shooting pinballs or like, like ping pong balls at them after every time you see them. Hopefully you will have like, built some understanding of each other and you kind of like each other and you have an understanding of like what they do on the weekends that you can ask them about or if they have kids or something, you know, like dogs or people really bond over dogs, talking about dogs. That's a big one. Um, but yeah, it's a process, right? So it's like, it depends on context. It depends on who the person is. Um, sometimes this stuff just doesn't go anywhere. Sometimes you run into that accountant every day and you're like, God damn, I don't want to talk to that accountant again. Um, but I generally find that like beyond the role, beyond the job, beyond the position, there's going to be something else, right? And maybe they have like a rage for accountancy and that person might be interesting to talk to, but they're like a zealot for accounting. Um, but maybe they want to do something else. You know, maybe it's the sailing conversation. Maybe it's, maybe it's their kids. Maybe it's something else. But um, when you talk to people on a regular basis, you just have to kind of, you have to be on the lookout for those sorts of things. Like they, they say something in passing and you're like, oh, okay, here's, here's something interesting. Like this, this is something that challenges the stereotype of an accountant. You know what I mean? You know, it, it, it's interesting, you this concept of free listening, because, you know, like you're a journalist and I podcast and like people often describe a lot of podcasts like mine, for instance, as an interview podcast. But I don't really feel like I interview people. Uh, it's more of a conversation. So back and forth, P people always used to accuse me of interrupting too much. But my feeling is if I'm curious about something and I don't interrupt now, I'm never going to learn what I want to learn. But I had an experience recently where I was doing an audio book where I was, a bunch of people were set up for me to interview and the topic was racism and them telling their stories. And so really it wasn't like how, like in a podcast, I could disagree with you. I could challenge you. I could um, tell my experiences and see if they relate to what you're saying. And, you know, it's a back and forth. But this was a situation where it's, it was basically uh, about 13 prominent African-Americans telling their stories and perspective on racism in the U S and racism in history. And so I had questions based on their backgrounds and experience. And I had prepared these questions, but there was no room for me to say yes. And because it's not my story to tell, like I really had no other than asking the questions and follow, and having follow-up questions so I could understand better, there was really nothing. I was not supposed to offer anything. I was supposed to not, like you say, and if you're listening, don't have an opinion. It was like a pure interview. And it was really a much different quality of experience than when I, let's say, talk to people on a, on a so-called interview podcast. Like, it, it, it's a very different experience, the free listening experience. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is it, for sure. So, so talk about talking to an enemy stranger. Okay, so this is, like I said, I structured this book to start with like easy tasks and then I went to much more difficult tasks. And while I was doing it, I kind of went through humanity's history with strangers and like how we dealt with strangers over the last... Right, I love all the evolutionary stuff about, you know, why we do this and like how you described small talk before. And, and just for that alone, this book is incredibly valuable, but I love all these techniques and strategies yeah. and breaking it down into different contexts yeah. and so yeah. on. So, the, so the, the thing about enemy strangers was um, much of that chapter came from my experience attending a, co a convention uh, for this group called Braver Angels. Um, and this is like a nonpartisan group that literally exists 
to teach Democrats and Republicans how to speak to each other, right? Like it teaches them to be able to sit at a table and talk about their dogs, right? This shouldn't be as hard as it is, but it's pretty hard. Like tempers are pretty hot at this point. People are not it interested. It is because no matter what, yeah, no matter what side you're on, the other side is full of shit and they're always lying. Yeah, and also they're not really, pe- <laughs> like the dehumanization happens when, um, when partisanship gets really intense where you're just like, you look at that other person or you imagine someone on the other side and then you're like, this person's like a witless, one-lunged organism. They're just following orders. They don't have agency. They don't have nuance. They're not like our side, which is vibrant and has like, you know, will and everything else. Um, we do dehumanize people on the other side. And when we dehumanize people, we don't see the point in talking to them. Why would you talk to them? Like, why would you talk to this one-lunged animal? Um, better just to stop them, to try to shut them down. So what Braver Angels does is it just gets those people together. And so I was there at their convention. It was like 400 people, 200 from each side. And this guy, Bill Donahue, who's this um, like really well-regarded family therapist in Minneapolis, created the structure for these interactions. Um, the stuff I was interested in was just the conversations. There are other parts to this too that were really interesting and really valuable. But the conversations, the way they facilitated these conversations was by reversing the order of how a political conversation usually works, right? So say one of us is pro-choice, one of us is pro-life. If I meet you for the first time and, and I'm like, I'm pro-choice, and you're like, I'm pro-life, and then we just start yelling at each other, um, it, it will go nowhere. We will not have a conversation, right? Because we, we're not identifying with each other. We're not connecting with each other. So the genius of the structure that Brave Angels came up with was you're not allowed to talk about that stuff until later, right? So those hard issues, like, that's going to come later. Your job at first is to just be able to sit there and basically make small talk, talk about your lives. Um, and it's very closely observed, and it's very rigidly structured because people will go crazy otherwise. Like, tempers are hot. You know, people are this – is, this is a dark time in American politics. Um, sure. So they'll sit them down and they'll say – it's like a conversational menu. Like, why are you here? Like, what motivated you to come here? So then you say what motivated you, and your motivation might be different from what they would expect an enemy's motivation to be, right? They would probably think that you're here because you're there to change people's minds. You're here to spread your propaganda. And you might say, I'm here because I'm on a city council in a small town that's evenly divided, and we can't get, like, potholes fixed because of the political fighting. Like, I'm here for practical reasons. I need to figure out how to work with Republicans or Democrats. And so you've done that. And then you talk a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What was your family like? What do you do? All this stuff. And what this does is it establishes like rapport before you get to the hard stuff. So you're like, oh, you have a dog? I have a dog. You know, like, what's your dog's name? Oh, that's cool. You have, you have like grandkids or kids? Like, what do they do? Where do they live? Where do you live? And you start to feel safe with each other. And you start to have like a more complex perception of like what a member of the enemy tribe is like, right? It's like, oh, this person doesn't fit my stereotype of what a member of that other side is. And so you're kind of interested. Maybe you're making each other laugh. I mean, when people are in each other's company, they tend to do a lot better than if they're like butting heads on Twitter, right? Because you're the humanity of the other person is kind of undeniable. You're seeing their gestures. You're seeing the way they dress. They're smiling. They're looking at you. Like it's really hard to dismiss someone who's like talking to you in person. Um, we kind of naturally like that. We tend to bond with people when we're in the room. We tend to find things in common when we're talking to each other. And so then when you warm each other up and then you say, you don't say, what are your views on like capital punishment? You said, describe how your views evolved on capital punishment. Like how did you come to believe what you believed? Like the process. And so that demonstrates that they, they're not just like, like a member of their group that does what they're told. It shows that they've actually put a little bit of thought into this. Um, and again and again and again, the whole time is to show that 
to demonstrate to both sides that they they can talk to each other, they can feasibly like each other, and they can also it also makes it much more difficult for them to dismiss the other person as like just a simple organism. You have to confront the complexity of the other person. And once you've warmed up, then you can have an argument. It's amazing. Yeah, I like I like that it starts with the kind of this is the role of small talk really is to like you say the evolutionary reason is to build that kind of rapport. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you're you've sat across a small table with a member of an enemy tribe and they haven't bitten you in the face. So you're like, "All right, so I'm I'm already I'm already uh, doing better than I thought I was going to do." Um, and then lo and behold, they end up being people and it's, and it's kind of interesting. One critical question is what about a situation which is known for talking like a bar and this is a common thing, you know, people want to meet each other, but it's also so awkward because it's obvious what everybody's doing. So how do you have a conversation with a stranger there? You mean it's obvious what everyone's doing that they're hitting on each other? It's always what men are doing when they start talking to a woman. Yeah, I, I talk to a lot of women who who um, run organizations that facilitate these kind of conversations, um, but also who did research on it and all this stuff. And I asked them that same thing. I was like, "How do you do this in a way that doesn't just just make you like a magnet for unwanted male attention? Right? How do you how do you make it clear that you're not just flirting with people all the time?" And they said they don't do it in bars. Um, when they do this, they do it in daylight. They do it in public. They'll do it in like a public place where there are people around. Um, and in time, people are usually pretty good at like deducing um, what you're that you're not flirting with them. You're not, you know, you're not you're not hitting on them. Um, but yeah, in a bar, it's complicated because there is an assumption that if someone starts talking to you, there's probably some sort of carnal interest there. Um, for me, I mean, I'll talk to anybody at this point, and I just try to show that I'm talking to them because I'm curious. Um, and people see that, you know, people will still be kind of wary and they might be still suspicious, but I'll talk about them. I'll ask them about whatever it is we're talking about and just be interested and be respectful and not be gross and not be cheesy just to try to be like, a, I'm, I'm a sane person here. I'm, I'm interested in what you have to say, but I have to be careful. Like if I'm, if I'm going to talk to like a woman in a bar, there's going to be the assumption that like I'm after something else. So I, I'm very cautious about those sorts of interactions. There's a lot of, there's, there's definitely like, you know, people, people are suspicious of other people who do this. So you have to be super mindful of it, that you're not coming across the wrong way. But that, that comes with a little bit of practice. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't take super long. Like, how do I practice that? I mean, I'm not picking up girls in bars. I'm married. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, in those situations where it's so scripted that people are cynical of the script, I feel like you, you have to really try hard to kind of just do a, a pattern disrupt, as they say in marketing. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was um, just a question of paying attention. Um, if someone seemed to be uncomfortable or they were not receptive, like I would think about why that might be. Uh, maybe the venue is the wrong venue. You just have to kind of notice the effect that you're having on people. Is it ever good to like be transparent? Like you, like if you see they're feeling uncomfortable, you say, look, I'm obviously doing this wrong. We're not going to work out, but what advice would you give me the next person I talk to? <laughs> I mean, that, that might come across as a little flirtatious too. Um, but I honestly, you know, like I never had, I really didn't have any negative interactions. Um, most of them, if you stuck with them long enough, like your intent would be pretty clear. Um, people would be kind of interested. And again, like I'm doing it in places where there are a lot of other people around. I'm not doing it so much in bars, like talking to a woman in a bar, but it was really, yeah, it was very rare that, that someone would be like, would be really brusque or like reject my attempt to like talk to them. It's a funny thing. And the, the research has shown that too. That um, 
you know, there's work by this guy, Nicholas Epley, and this psychologist, Juliana Schroeder, who just sent people all over the Chicago mass transit system and in London and had them talk to strangers, like, during their commutes, which is, like, a big no-no. That's, like, a violation of a sacred norm. And they found that not a single one of the hundreds of people they had sent out was actually rejected. Um, so I think people are more adept at this than they think they are. I mean, you definitely have those people who just stick to you and they're not reading the signs that you're not interested in this and you don't want to be bothered. Um, and those people are a problem, but... Um, but I don't think it takes that much to avoid being one of those people. So interesting. This entire book is really interesting. And not only interesting from, you know, you you hit it from so many different angles. Like someone could read this book and be interested. Oh, this is the, I had no idea. This was the evolutionary reason for these types of different conversations. Or, you know, but then you get to real practical specifics of like how to talk to strangers. And it's just such a useful, interesting book. I don't even know. Is this your first book? Yeah, it is. Yep. Oh, well, congratulations. It's a great book. And it's The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Really great. It's a lot of storytelling, a lot of useful examples, useful advice. I love the chapter titles too, because I love chapter titles where it's not very direct, but you want to read them. So like chapter seven, meet the murderer and the man from another dimension. <laughs> what a great, that's the best chapter title I've read in a long time. That's great. I don't, maybe the best ever. So so, Joe, thank you so much. Joe Cohane, K-E-O-H-A-N-E. Yeah, it's a real Gaelic nightmare, my last name. Author of The Power of Strangers. I highly recommend it. You, you, I've written down a bunch of notes. There's so many things I am going to actually try because I have serious problems with this. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for coming on the podcast, and you're always welcome back, and good luck with the book. That's great. Thanks so much, James. It was great talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. 